So before I get into today's uh, topic, a couple of uh, announcements. In January, we're starting our new Wednesday night format. So I'd very much encourage you to participate. Here's what we're going to be doing. We're still going to have dinner at 5.30. Um, the idea is so that none of you feel like you've got to rush home, cook dinner for everybody, and get here makes it difficult. So if possible, you know, get off of work and just grab the family and bring them on over. We eat at 5.30, and I think it's like $3 a person, so it's, it's not hard to do. And then at 6 o'clock, the children go, the older ones, to the youth group, and the younger ones go to Awana, which is kind of like a, a Christian Boy Scouts type of thing. It's really cool. It's for boys and girls. It's a good time. And we are starting in January another class for the younger ones called Cubbies. And they're, I think, three to five-year-olds. So we're going to have the three to five-year-olds and then the five through whatever-year-olds, five to 12. And then at 12, they choose whether they're going to stay in Awana or go off to the youth group. That's their choice. And the adults, we're going to either meet in here or maybe in rooms 9 and 10, have a little acoustic worship, enjoy each other's company, and then break up into groups. So rather than us all adults being together in one room listening to a lesson where I speak at you, we're going to break up into small groups with group leaders and discuss lessons together. So the, your teacher will bring you a lesson, but the format will be such that there's questions, there's answers, everybody gets to give their feedback. The first set is going to be uh, the topic of salvation, but each leader gets to present the topic the way he wants to present it. So like our guy from Beth Sar Shalom, uh, Michael, he's going to give a Jewish perspective on salvation. Nick LaPrell is going to tie salvation into I'll call it apologetics, what other religions and other concepts of salvation are. I know you've got a better topic, Nick. I just forgot the title of it. Sorry. And then um, Jose, Pastor Jose and Pastor Michael will be teaching. So we're going to break up into groups roughly of 10 each. Michael's, though, is going to be just for men. He's taking the men's group and doing just them. So we're going to see how that goes for about four to six weeks. And then the, the hope is this launches a whole new you know, concept here at Book of Life where everybody in the church has the opportunity to join a small group. A group of people you can bond, get to know better, trust, get to hang out with, and then everybody in the church then, nobody will fall through the cracks. Unless you want to. And that's entirely up to you. If you don't join a small group, you're going to fall through the cracks. But we don't want people falling through the cracks. Even a congregation our size People don't show up for a few weeks and nobody knows where they're at or if they're well enough and nobody's holding them accountable or nobody's there to help. So we're going to hope that all gets taken care of starting in January. The second thing is, and this is just for those who have made Book of Life their home. If you're visiting or still checking us out, this has nothing to do with you. Plug your ears and go, meh, 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 because I'm not talking to you right now. Uh, but those of you who have Book of Life as your home, uh, two things. First of all, please pray. Second of all, do what you need to do. This is between you and God. But apparently when I went off to Israel, a bunch of you didn't show up and you left all your money at home and our, our offerings were way down. We had to take money out of the new building fund to pay for our regular bills. And that's just kind of sad. So I'm not upset. I'm not worried. It's all God. But it's me. I have to at least let you know what's going on. So the budget is printed on the little sheet in the back. Uh, again, it's not a guilt thing. It's just it, whatever you want to do, but it is my responsibility as the pastor to let you know what's going on here. So we had to take some money out of the building fund, put it into the bills, and that is what it is. Okay, visitors, unplug your ears. Welcome to Book of Life Community Church. All righty. 
Um, it is my pleasure to talk to you about Hanukkah and Christmas this morning. You're not going to get that at most churches. Most of you already know that. And most people think Hanukkah has absolutely nothing to do with Christmas. They think, well, the Hanukkah is the Jewish thing, and Christmas is the Christian thing, and never the twain shall meet. Well, I think you're going to find out this morning that that's not quite accurate. I think you're going to see a, a connection that many of you didn't know existed. But in order to do that, I've got to give you a little history lesson, which I love doing, especially because, you know, where the Old Testament ends and the New Testament starts, there's about 400 years in there. And you step into a whole new world, and it's like, what happened in there? Well, this morning I get to share with you a little bit about what happened in there. We are in the book of Kings. Now, I'm not talking about Kings today because this is a Hanukkah Christmas thing. But the Kings will go on for a few hundred years, and God will keep warning them through the prophets, stop worshiping idols, stop killing innocent people, or I'm going to take you out. He gives them like 400 years. Finally, he says, that's enough. The kings of Assyria, so the Assyrians come down. Uh, if you don't know anything about Assyria, um, maybe you've heard of Nineveh. That was their capital. They're the ones that ran the world in that part of the, uh, in those days. They came down, destroyed the northern kingdom called Israel, took everybody out of the country, brought a few back in, mixed them in with some foreigners, and that's where the Samaritans came from. So the Assyrians came in and destroyed Israel. Judah, the other Jewish nation, which was south of them, their prophets say, now if you don't straighten up, the same thing's going to happen to you. They got about another hundred years. By this time, the Babylonians had taken over Assyria. Now the Babylonians are in charge. They came down. And they conquered Judah and took a lot of those people away, brought them off to Babylon. But only for about 70 years. And then under kings Cyrus and Darius, they were allowed to come back and build the temple in Israel. Israel wasn't as strong and influential as it had been, but they started over again because Cyrus and Darius let them do that. Now, Babylon became replaced. So first Assyria... Then Babylon. Babylon got taken over by the Medes and the Persians. You with me so far? I know history can get like... And I really don't want to do that. But you've got to find, follow the story. So the Medes and the Persians are now in charge of Israel and the entire Mediterranean world. The Persians were considered unbeatable, invincible, unstoppable. But there was a prophecy in the book of Daniel that said they would be beaten and they would be stopped. Well, a guy from Greece decides to challenge the might of Darius. The guy's name was Alexander. You probably heard of him. His name was Alexander the Great, one of the greatest generals and tyrants of all history. Greatest, not in the sense that he was a good guy, but he was extremely effective at what he did. And what Alexander did, he conquered the entire Mediterranean world, and everywhere he went, he forced everyone to learn Greek, not just the language, but also their culture and the religion. Forced them. Now, all the countries of the world worshipped multiple gods anyway, so hey, they added a few more, no big deal. But Israel didn't worship multiple gods. Alexander went across the water and got up to north of Israel, Syria, north and east of Israel, and he sent an envoy to Israel. And he said, I'm fighting Darius. Send me supplies and send me men. Well, Israel was under the sovereignty of Darius 
and had a covenant with Darius. So the high priest sent the envoys back, and he said, we have a covenant with Darius, and we take our covenants very seriously. We will not break our covenant with Darius. Darius lost. Alexander said, I'm coming to Jerusalem to wipe you off the face of the planet. You're either with me or against me. You chose, and you chose wrong. I'm coming. Now imagine, Darius was considered undefeatable. He was just beat by Alexander the Great, and now his army is marching on Jerusalem. Scared much? Oh, yeah. They were petrified. What could they possibly do? There is no way little Israel could fight against Alexander the Great. By the way, when they took over a country, their army got bigger because they conquered and then adopted more soldiers. They just kept growing. He just beat Persia. Now they're coming for Jerusalem? That's it. So the high priest proclaims a fast. They all put on their sackcloth and the ashes, and they're scared to death, and they pray. The high priest, this is, by the way, we're around 300 B.C. So this is about 100 years or 150 years-ish from the end of the Old Testament heading towards the New Testament. And they pray. The next day, the high priest gets up, puts on his nice clothes, sackcloth is gone. He gathers everybody in and says, don't worry, I had a dream. God visited me and he said, don't worry about Darius. I've got this one. Don't even fight him. Open your gates. In fact, you priests, put on your best garments, tell everybody to dress up nice, and when he comes, I want you to go out and greet him. And the high priest was overjoyed. Everybody rejoiced. God had answered their prayer. They didn't have to fear Darius. I mean, uh, Alexander. So Alexander's marching in, ready to destroy Jerusalem, and we go out and greet him in our Sunday best. <laughs> and the craziest thing happened. Alexander gets off his horse, walks up to the high priest, and bows down. I don't know if he was on his, at his feet. I think he was like, bow down. Maybe on his knees. And everybody was like, and all his generals are whispering. They don't dare say anything to Alexander. But one of them, his closest friend, his closest confidant said, what are you doing? All the kings of the earth bow before you, and you're bowing before the Jewish priest? Have you lost your mind? And he said, let me tell you something. I haven't told anybody. Before I took this eastern campaign, I didn't know if I could beat Darius. I had a vision. And in my vision, a God I didn't know told me to go, and he would give me the victory. And he showed me something. He showed me this man who's standing right in front of me and his breastplate with the divine name written right there. I saw that in my vision. I'm not bowing before the priest. I'm bowing before his God. True story. So... The high priest says, well, now that we're friends and all, <laughs> how about you cut us a little slack on this worshiping the idols thing? You've met our God. We're not allowed to worship other gods, only him. Israel has the exclusion. Everybody else has to worship my gods, but Israel does not have to. Go figure. Crazy, crazy. And then he brought out the Torah scrolls and all the scrolls of the Bible and showed him in the book of Daniel, where he was mentioned. And it just blew Alexander's mind. 
Now, remember I told you that he got mad at them because they would not break their deal with Darius? Well, he realized that these were a covenant-keeping people. So he took a whole bunch of them, volunteers, shipped them off to Alexandria, Egypt, and said, would you go to Egypt, watch my back, be careful of my interests there, because you guys are covenant-keeping, and I know you won't betray me like they will. And he used Jews throughout his empire because he trusted them, because they were honored, people who would honor their word. And that's how we got elevated in that part of world history. Well, again, Daniel's story doesn't end with Alexander the Great. It says he would die, and his kingdom would be replaced by four generals. It's exactly what happened. These generals all wanted to conquer each other's territory. But two generals, one took the north of Israel, one took the south, Egypt. The guy in the north was General Seleucus, and the guy in the south was Ptolemy. Okay? So the Egyptians were the Ptolemies, but they were Greeks. The Seleucids were the Syrians, but they were Greeks. And they wanted to fight over Israel, who got that prime piece of real estate. When the Ptolemies had it, they followed Alexander's policy of leaving the Jewish people alone. So life was good. I'm sorry to say it was too good, because Jewish people loved the Greek world so much, Alexander didn't force them to worship the Greek gods. They started doing it voluntarily. So as soon as people start breaking God's covenant, the warnings start kicking in again. The Seleucids went down to fight the Ptolemies in Egypt, bypassed Israel altogether. That was the policy, leave the Jews alone. And they were going to defeat them. But Rome stepped in. Here's where Rome comes into the picture. Okay? Now we're somewhere around 160 B.C. And Rome says, no, leave them alone. So somehow... Rome all of a sudden became, became powerful enough to tell the mighty Seleucids what to do, and they listened. So the Seleucids went back north. They had to pillage and plunder somebody. They took it out on Israel. They set up camp. They set up an idol in the temple of God to Zeus that looked just like the general of the Assyrian army, whose name was Antiochus. He even called himself Epiphanes, the manifest God, demanded that the Jews worship him, as Zeus, his idol looked like Zeus, looked the same. They sacrificed a pig in the holy temple, and then they went from village to village to village. Anywhere they found Jews studying the Bible, they would execute them and burn the Bible. If they found Jewish women with circumcised children, they'd execute the children and the mothers. Anything they did that smacked of following the Bible would come with severe penalty, including death. They got to a certain village called Modin and they gathered the dignitaries and the people together and said, you know what we're doing. We're going town to town, setting up idols. You've got to follow Zeus. You've got to submit to our ways. Bring me the high pri the priest from Modin. And a guy named Mattathias came and said, sacrifice the pig to Zeus. And Mattathias said, not going to happen. Not a chance. No way. If you don't, we will kill you. I don't care. I will not worship your God. Some guy in the crowd said, okay, I'll do it, I'll do it. Maybe he think he was doing a good deed. Mattathias was so angry, he slew that guy. Called for his boys to attack the soldiers. They did. Killed them. And then they fled to the hills. And then they sent word out to Israel. You sick of idols? Had enough yet? 
Those of you that don't want to worship false gods, join us. We will fight. So they got a crowd of people, but wasn't nearly enough people. And they said, we've got to chase these guys out and get our temple back. We're outnumbered seven to one. We can't chase them out. They're, they're trained soldiers. We're farmers. If God is with us, who can be against us? You've read the stories in the Bible just like I have. If we follow the covenant, God will protect us. It doesn't matter how many they have. Let's repent before God, and then let's go fight. And he encouraged the people. So they repented before God, and they went and fought, and they chased those guys out, and they won the day. That, by the way, chasing those guys out and winning the day is what Hanukkah is about. When they took the temple back, the light, the menorah, the candles, abra that's in the temple, which was always supposed to be burning, had been extinguished for three years. So they immediately lit it. But they didn't have any more sanctified oil, only enough to last one day. All the rest of the jars had been broken. And it would take a good seven days, eight days to get more. They said, it doesn't matter, let's just light it. And the legend says that that lamp stayed lit for eight days and eight nights until they could get more oil. And so every year at Hanukkah, Jewish homes throughout the year, some sort of candelabra is lit in remembrance of that time and that event. Prayers are said. And you'll notice, and I've only got one candle, you can see the bigger one down here, which is way cool. There's always eight plus one. This is a special menorah for Hanukkah. The eight for the eight days that it supposedly stayed lit. And the one, which is called the servant light. And it lights the others. So you always light the one. And then on the first night, you would light one candle. So you'd have two candles burning. On the second night, three, and then at four, until all eight are lit. It's a, it's a fun little festival. And then gifts are given. Um, special foods are eaten, like because of the, the oil, potato pancakes are fried up, donuts are fried up, just to remind you of the miracle of the oil. And then games are played. Like this is called a dreidel. And on it, you can come up and see it after services. On it, maybe you guys can zoom in a little bit, just for a moment here. On it are four Hebrew letters that stand for four Hebrew words that mean a great miracle happened there. I don't know if that actually happens. It's not in the Bible. It's just history. It might not be real history. Somebody might have just gotten fanciful and written it down. People write lies all the time, make things up. Could it have happened? Yeah. But if it did happen, that's not such a great miracle. I'm not impressed. And God opened up the Red Sea. He made man out of dirt, woman out of man, a virgin birth. I mean, what, what's a, a lamp lit for eight days? So a great miracle happened there. To me, that's not the great miracle. To me, the great miracle is that our people turned back to God and God gave us the victory over this amazing army. To me, that's the great miracle. You're saying, Steve, that's a really cool story, but what the heck does that have to do with Christmas? Patience, my children. <laughs> I will tell you this. The day that the temple was destroyed and the day that the temple was rededicated were the same day. And it was the month Kislev, the day 25. By the way, according to the Hebrew calendar, we are in the month Kislev. 
what happens on day 25? Hmm, interesting. Hanukkah is mentioned one time by name. I already told you some of the events leading up to it. Even Antiochus is probably mentioned in Daniel 8 through 11. But it's only mentioned by name one time in the Bible, and it's in John chapter 10. It says, Then came the Feast of Dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was in the temple area walking in Solomon's colonnade. It was the Feast of Dedication. The word dedication in Hebrew, Hanukkah. So guess which festival it was? Hanukkah. I, had a, I have a friend who's the editor, the chief editor. There's a, group, a bunch of scholars who worked on the International Standard Version of the Bible. You can Google it. It's available through eSword for free, and you can get it online, the International Standard Version of the Bible. It's pretty interesting because one of the things they tried to do was take the portions of the New Testament that are poetic and put them in English in poetry. So it's more like what they think the original would have been. But I, I got to be one of their, not editors, but readers. They sent out while they were doing their drafts to a bunch of pastors and lay people all over the place and said, what do you think? Well, and I also got to sit in on one of their translation sessions and make some suggestions, which they took. One of the suggestions I made had to do with Corinthians, but I made a suggestion about John. I said, it says in John, it was the Feast of the Dedication. Who knows what the Feast of the Dedication is in any church in any country? Nobody. But everybody knows Hanukkah. And Hanukkah is the word for dedication. It's just translated straight over. So why don't you just call it Hanukkah instead of the Feast of Dedication? They talked about it. Dear Steve, that's what we will do. So in the International Standard Version, I got Hanukkah, baby! <laughs> yeah, woohoo! <laughs> so go look it up. It's fun. The only place it's mentioned in all the Bible... John chapter 10, Jesus chose to be in the temple on Hanukkah. Why? Don't know. But his conversation with the religious authorities is recorded. So I think I do know why. He had something to say, and he wanted to say it on Hanukkah. Let me read to you what the scripture says. The Jews, better read here, the Jewish leaders, gathered around him saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, if you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. And he answered, I did tell you, but you don't believe me. The miracles I do. Ah, talking about miracles on Hanukkah. What a concept. The miracles I do in my Father's name speak for me, but you don't believe because you're not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father, we are one. All right, he says, you don't believe me because you're not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, they know me. What does a voice have to do with anything? Well, I'm not a shepherd, but I'll tell you what I've read. But before I tell you about sheep and that which I don't know from personal experience, I'll tell you what I do know from personal experience. Dogs. I've had dogs most of my life. Dogs are smart and dogs are stupid. They're just different. And even amongst dogs, some dogs behave differently than other dogs. They all have some things in common, 
but they are different in some ways. A dog needs its sense of smell to really be able to know you. In fact, I could be standing in my front yard talking and my dogs would be barking at me thinking I'm some stranger. They don't recognize my voice. What do they recognize? They do a little. What they don't recognize is what I look like. If I'm just standing out the window, they're barking at me. If I start talking, they're, I think I know that voice, but I'm not sure. When I open the door, they come up and sniff me and they go, oh, welcome home. It's not till they smell me that they know me. So if it was a dog illustration, he'd say, you know, they smell me, they know me. But with sheep, it's not the sight, it's not the smell, it's the sound of the shepherd's voice. Shepherds would sing to their sheep, would speak to their sheep all the time. And so if a shepherd says, come on, sheepy, 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 let's go get some water. Come on, sheepy, sheepy, sheepy. All the sheep follow the shepherd's voice. But let's say they're not your sheep. And you go up one day and go, come on, sheepy, sheepy, sheepy. Let's get some water, sheepy, sheepy, sheepy. They're not going to follow you. They're going to turn tail and run. You're creepy. They don't know your voice. Do you know the voice of God? If you follow Jesus, you do. If you don't follow Jesus, you don't. He told them, you don't know me because you're not my sheep. He said, my sheep, I know them. And I do much better than give them water. I give them eternal life. They are safe in my hand. So four things in that little Hanukkah story that he shared. First of all, he affirmed that he was indeed the Messiah. But that they couldn't, number two, they couldn't believe him because they weren't his sheep. Third, his sheep do know who he is. And fourth, his sheep are safe in his arms and guaranteed eternal life. All right, that's Hanukkah. Now let's talk Christmas. No, most people don't know what the word Hanukkah means. Now you do. Dedication. Most people don't know what Christmas means either. They know the word Christ. We got that. But unless you were raised Catholic, you don't know what Mass means. And even if you weren't raised Catholic... It's not just Catholics who celebrate the holiday, so Christ's Mass doesn't really apply to Christmas for most people. So Christmas today means the celebration of Jesus' birth. It means that by usage, not by definition. All right? So the meaning of Christmas for us today is the celebration of the Messiah's birth, Jesus' birth. We celebrate it on December 25th. Now, a lot of people say, Steve, you don't really think Jesus was born on December 25th, do you? I'm like, well, there's 365 days of the year. That one works for me. <laughs> but Steve, how do you know it wasn't... I don't know when he was born. I wasn't there. And nobody wrote it down. But I really love the fact that Hanukkah was on December 25th. And I'm real curious to know why Christmas is on December 25th if that's not when he was born. Why would somebody pick a Jewish holiday? Oh, Steve, it's the winter solstice they picked. Maybe, I don't know. All I do know is that he was born. And when he was born, I don't much care. I don't think he cares either. See, Steve, well, I don't want to celebrate his day if it's not his birthday. Okay. But if you don't know when my birthday is, I will take chocolate 365. <laughs> All right? If you, you know, if, if you went to some great trouble, decorated the house, and I came home, and surprise, happy birthday! And it's three months early, I'm like, where's the cake? Where's the presents? 
I'm not going to get mad at you. I'm going to thank you for trying to honor me. Okay, you missed the day. I don't care. I didn't tell you the day, now did I? I don't think Jesus gets men out of shape if we might be wrong on the day. I think the thing is that we're celebrating his birth. But if you're one of those people who doesn't like December 25th, pick a date. Celebrate his birth. It's all good. So when was he born? I don't know. I don't care. If you're one of those people who cares, God bless you, but you don't know either. So just pick a day and celebrate the Messiah's birth. Now you say, ah, I celebrate his birth every day. No, you don't. You may love him every day and you may follow him every day, but you don't celebrate his birth every day. And you don't have to ever celebrate it. It's entirely up to you. We're not legalists. Do what you want. God bless you. All right, about Christmas. It means the celebration of Messiah's birth. The Bible says several things about the Messiah's birth. Prior to him being born, there were prophecies about his coming birth. Where he'd be born, when he'd be born, and what he would do. There's more, but we don't have time to look at all that. So we'll look at these three. Where the Messiah would be born, when the Messiah would be born, and what the Messiah would do. Three prophecies. The first one, where the Messiah would be born. Micah chapter 5, this is what it says. But you, Bethlehem, Ephratah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the ruler, the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Sometimes prophecy is a little confusing. We'll see some confusing prophecy this morning, but I'll do my best to explain it to you. Bethlehem Ephrata. There was more than one Bethlehem. So Bethlehem Ephrata let us know exactly which Bethlehem he was talking about. This is the one by Jerusalem in Judea that King David came from. Um, don't let it freak you out. What do you mean there was more than one Bethlehem? You know, I used to live near Miami in Florida. I get out here and I saw a sign that says this way to Miami. I'm like, there's a Miami up by a place called Globe. I used to live in Southern California, about a half hour drive from Hollywood maybe 45 minutes. Then I moved to Florida by Miami and lived in Hollywood. Did you know there was a Hollywood, Florida? And it's a huge town. It's, it's big. So don't let it bother you that there's more than one Bethlehem. That's how countries are. We all have all sorts of different cities named after themselves. You know, you tell somebody, hey man, where do you live? I live on Broadway. Okay, can you narrow that down a little? Okay, in Arizona. A little more, please. In Tucson, great. Like, what town doesn't have a street called Broadway on it? It's all the same. So this narrows it down to the exact Bethlehem Yeshua was from. What was going to be from, it was a prophecy. Bethlehem Ephrata. You're small, yet out of you shall come the ruler of Israel. The cool part to me is whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. So somehow he's going to be born, but still be from everlasting. How do you do that? Now, you know all the Christian story, but imagine you never heard it before. That's a mystery. How do you get born and yet be old at the same time? Huh. So, we don't know much at this point in biblical history, but we do know that the ruler of Israel is going to come out of Bethlehem and somehow also be old. He's going to be newborn and old all at the same time. Luke chapter 2 says this. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. We didn't get that far in history, but I told you Rome was sneaking in. Now Rome's in charge. Someday we'll give you that lesson. 
Everyone went to his own town to be register, registered. His own town, that is the town of their birth. Wherever their family came from, that's where they had to go for their registration. Good thing Israel was a lot smaller than the U.S. of A., huh? Imagine you having to go back to your hometown of birth for a registration. I don't even know if I could afford the plane ticket to Connecticut. So Joseph went from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house in the line of David. He went there to register with Miriam, Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths, placed him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. The prophecy said the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. But it just so worked out that the chosen descendant of David, and he did not know he was the chosen descendant of David, and at first she did not know she was the chosen descendant of David. They didn't live in Bethlehem. They lived in Nazareth. So that's where they're going to stay. God said, no, 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 I got a prophecy to deal with here. I said, you're going to be born in Bethlehem? You're going to be born in Bethlehem. But he didn't go to Joseph and to Mary, Miriam and say, hey, move to Bethlehem. We got to fulfill a prophecy. They didn't know anything. All they knew is there's a new law that we got to go back home to register for the tax. So let's go. Just so happened to be when she was pregnant and just so happened to be time to give birth when she got there. You cannot mess with God's prophecy. God makes sure what's going to happen is going to happen. So we know the Bible tells us where the Messiah was going to be born. He was going to be born in Bethlehem. And we know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. We also know when the Messiah would be born. Okay, this passage of Scripture is a little confusing, but I think I'll make it understandable for you. Here's the prophecy. It comes from Jan Daniel chapter 9. Now remember, Daniel chapter 8 and forward, part of that talked about the whole events leading up to this with the Hanukkah Maccabee thing. This is the same context. Future dates. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the, com of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the Prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. So we know the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem, Micah chapter 5. In Daniel chapter 9, we know he's going to be cut off. He's going to die. But can we narrow this down? When is this all going to happen? Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until the Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So the date is given. This is confusing. I'll make it simple. But the date is given to exactly when Messiah will come. Here's the simple version. It says he'll come, he'll be cut off, and then the city and the sanctuary will be destroyed. Okay? So without even having to look at that weeks, without even knowing when the degree comes, we know this. Messiah was supposed to be cut off sometime before the temple was destroyed. The temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. So even if you just have a cursory knowledge of this passage, you know the Messiah should have come sometime before 70 A.D. Do you know of anybody in all of world history 
who came, was born in Bethlehem, people think he might be the Messiah, died, and it all happened before 70 AD. Anybody? Anybody? <laughs> There's only one. And I tell people, if it's not him, then who? It's him. That's the easy way of looking at it. But let me give you the hard way. From the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It says the street and the wall shall be built again, but in troublesome times. When you look at the commands in Scripture, there's a few of them that give the people permission to go back and build. I told you already about Cyrus and Darius. They gave permission to go back and build the temple, but not the walls. That came from Artaxerxes. His command, his blessing, his permission is recorded in Nehemiah. Historians know when he lived, and they even think they know the year he gave that decree. So now we know when the decree was given, but what's with all these weeks? By the way, King Artaxerxes um, ruled around 450. He was on both sides of the year 450. I like to throw out easy dates. It's believed his decree was given 445. But let me talk to you about from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It could better be translated from the Hebrew. There shall be seven sevens and 62 sevens. A week is the Hebrew word for sevens, Shavuot. So if you want to say week in Hebrew, Steve, how do you say it? Shavuot. If you want to say sevens, Steve, how do you say it? Shavuot. So how do you know the difference? You don't. Context. But the most common word is week, Shavuot. So they translated week, Shavuot. But it means seven. If this was literal weeks, and you start counting from Artaxerxes' decree, this set of weeks, you come up with nothing. But if you consider it as a set of seven years, a set of seven, it's sevens, and that makes sense. It makes sense for a very significant reason. Get out your pencil. I'll try to put it into English. I'll probably mess up. I don't mean from Hebrew. I mean from gibberish in my brain. Um, Israel was judged and punished based on the sabbatical year, according to Jeremiah and the other prophets. God said, I'm going to let your land lie fallow. And what's a sabbatical year? Seven years. It's a set of seven. So the idea is, well, this is a turning over of that. It makes sense. Can I say for certain? No. I can, just, I can tell you, though, that a week equals seven. Seven what? We're not certain. But if you do it with years, you get seven weeks plus 62 weeks equals 69 weeks of years. So I did the math. 69 times 7 equals 483 years. So if the decree was given in 445 B.C. and you count up 483 years, that's 483 minus 445, puts you at 38 A.D. Now you're probably thinking, wow, Steve, that's really close to the day Jesus came, but you missed it by a few years. Probably, maybe, don't know. Current thought is that Jesus died in 33 A.D. So that kind of messes up the math. Doesn't work, does it? 
Well, not the way I do math, it doesn't work. But I don't know when Jesus died. I just know current thought is 33 AD. Oh, and did I make the mistake of using English years and not Jewish years? And did I make the mistake of not calculating for the Jewish leap year? Yes, I did. So if I can fix that, that'll put us at 33 AD. In fact, some of these scholars have been so meticulous that they even know the day. And one of the scholars, one of the most famous, says this was the day of Jesus' triumphal entry. The day that he walked into Jerusalem and everybody proclaimed him the Messiah while they threw down the palm fronds. Maybe you didn't know they proclaimed him the Messiah, but they did. Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, that was a Hebrew way of saying, send us the Messiah, save us. We know where the Messiah was to be born. Bethlehem. Prophecy told us. We know when Messiah was to come. The prophecy told us. And the decree is recorded in Nehemiah. You count the years, it brings us right to the days of Jesus. And the scripture tells us also what the Messiah would do. Back to the Christmas story. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Miriam, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because jo Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. You know, that's a whole lesson right there. He was a righteous man. Well, if he was a righteous man, he'd want her stoned. The Bible says he's a righteous man. Mercy triumphs over judgment, people. The Bible calls this gracious, gentle man who's willing to overlook what he thinks is adultery. The Bible calls him righteous. I think sometimes we're too quick to throw knives. God is not so quick. He thinks she committed adultery. He wasn't going to expose her. He was just going to end the marriage proceedings. But he learned different. He was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you're to give him the name Yeshua, Joshua, Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with a child and will give birth to a son, and they'll call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. I told you we know where the Messiah was to be born, when the Messiah was to be born, and what he was to do. That's tied to his name. You are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. One more prophecy. Not only did the prophet say where the Messiah was to be born, when he was to be born, and what he, would to do, what he would do, it said how he would do it. Let me read to you about what he would do from Isaiah chapter 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Hanukkah was the dedication of the temple. The temple is the place where atonement for sin was made. And so we light lights and we give gifts every year to celebrate God's deliverance, God's redemption, specifically surrounding the place of atonement of sin. And it happened on Kislev 25, which corresponds to December 25th in the Jewish calendar in many years. On December 25th, we celebrate the coming of the one who made real, permanent, and lasting atonement. And we light lights, and we give gifts, and we celebrate God's redemption, especially the person through whom it's made. That's the Hanukkah and Christmas connection. So I want to wish you a very happy Hanukkah and a very Merry Christmas.